Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. For the first half of our program this week, we'll hear an interview Eleanor did about a union organizing campaign underway at the Trader Joe's grocery store chain. Her guest is Sarah Beth Ryder, a worker and organizer at a Trader Joe's store in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This is part of a larger wave of unionization efforts happening at various stores across the United States. Later, I'll present a rebroadcast of a conversation I had last year with my Project Censored colleague, our Associate Director, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. Roth wrote an important article for the Marquez Review about how tech giants are increasingly using algorithms instead of human editors to decide what materials we see online. The new gatekeepers, how proprietary algorithms increasingly determine the news we see and how big tech censors by proxy. Up next on the Project Censored Show. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored radio show. We are very glad right now to be joined by Sarah Beth Reiter, who is an employee organizer at the Trader Joe's in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sarah Beth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So first of all, congratulations. <laughs> and uh, secondly, I think a lot of people listening might be like, wow, Trader Joe's, really? Because there's a concept of Trader Joe's as being cool and progressive, um, and when I lived in LA, like there was a joke that, you know, uh, people at Trader Joe's made more than extras did on a film shoot. And so I think there's this question that people might be wondering, like, okay, I get why Starbucks should unionize, but why does Trader Joe's need to unionize? Can you speak a little bit about that conception of Trader Joe's, if it's true or false, and then your feelings about why it was important to start unionizing? Yeah, I think that Trader Joe's is really good at presenting a particular image. Um, you know, they have a cult following of their products all over the place. They do a really, really good job of hiring kind people. And I think that's across the board. So when you walk into a Trader Joe's, you run into a person who is really kind and friendly and who who is smiling because they've been able to perfect that. But I think uh, this magical narrative there's always something behind something that's a little bit too magical. I think that Trader Joe's was once a really, really awesome place to work. And I think that corporate Trader Joe's um, used to be better at caring for their employees. And with the pandemic and with just a series of socioeconomic changes that have happened in the world, along with decisions that corporate Trader Joe's has made, the working conditions have eroded over time. Leaving workers with this magical narrative left over um, and the truth being different than that narrative which would suggest. And could you talk a little bit about those working conditions that are you know, behind the magical smokescreen? 
Trader Joe's United, we are interested in improving our pay and benefits and our working conditions regarding safety. Those are those are our, our really, really big things. And I would say that pay and benefits wise, there's been a real inequality in pay over the past several years. Up until very recently, the day after actually that the Minneapolis store, which is a store I work at, announced their election date. Up until that date, their pay structure for employees at my level, which is they, they're called crew members, the non-management position, they would be hired at a base salary and then the raise structure was the same. So you'd get two, two raises a year of the same amount. Um, but as wages went up across the country, Trader Joe's needed to be competitive with that. And so they would hire new hires at that wage while folks who had been working there for several years still made the same with those raises that were never ever going to catch up to the several dollars more that they were hired at. And so that was a huge issue. And Trader Joe's corporate in what we feel was an anti-union statement unleashed, uh, unleashed is maybe not a right word, unrolled, unrolled a bunch of new benefits and compensation the day after our election. And that included discretionary changes to this, to this structure that folks might be, they might also not be bumped up to the wages that are at the market level right now. So that's, that's the first, that's the first thing that we're worried that you, you know, we were worried about. Yeah, so the discretionary, I mean, one of the things that we we talk about a lot on the show is, you know, how how language is oftentimes used to trick us into thinking that something's good when it's not, you know, like the right to work laws. Um, and discretionary just sounds like a way to be to to say, well, then we don't have to, but we can make it look like we're doing something without doing something. How how is Trader Joe's United responding to this? Yeah. So if you look, it's it's like with you're absolutely right about language and language is super, super powerful. And um, we have experienced Trader Joe's corporate using language in a really tricky way. Um, this part in this particular situation, it was the fine print was that essentially these these wage increases that they have now promised would be each captain at the store, so each general manager at the store would review on a case-by-case basis these individuals who were wanting to be brought up to the market level. And so that, that for us is, well, it's as a matter of principle, we believe that folks with more experience should be making more or at the very least equal to somebody who just walked off the street and and was hired and it shouldn't be a matter of a discretionary decision and you know one of the reasons why we're so excited for our union is that we can build a lot of these wage protections into our contract and say hey look let's let's fairly compensate folks for the work that they're doing yeah absolutely and i'm I'm a bit curious, um, and, and I'm sure listeners would be curious as well in terms of how this came about, the the workplace organizing. How did these conversations start and how did you all actually turn this into, uh, you know, an official union? 
Right. So uh, I work at the Minneapolis store. And so we have our vote on August 11th and August 12th. And uh, so we're waiting for our election. We're super excited. Um, we feel confident. Uh, the other, the only unionized store in the country right now is in Hadley, Massachusetts. Um, and they started organizing um, several months before we did. So last year, and I think it was for their store, many of the employees had worked there for you know, 10 to 20 years. A lot of several of the organizers there had worked at Trader Joe's for 18 years. So they've seen in real time the way that Trader Joe's corporate has eroded benefits and how things have changed from this narrative that you spoke about in the beginning, this like really golden, amazing place to work um, to a company that at the corporate level does not care for its workers. And so they, you know, just just were were pushed into action by this long term change for the Minneapolis store. It was a different story. And I think our story, our difference, our differences speak to the fact that Trader Joe's across the country is not a monolith because every single store exists in a different neighborhood. Um, and that's one of Trader Joe's values that each store should be a neighborhood store. And so for us, it was really different. We, most of us have worked for Trader Joe's for less than a year. I've worked for Trader Joe's for just about a year. Um, and for the Minneapolis store, pay and benefits were a really big deal, but safety was an equal, if not larger issue for us. We're located in a densely populated urban area and we absolutely love our community. We love our neighbors. We love interacting with folks on a day-to-day -day basis. We love interacting with regulars. But because we live in a densely populated urban area, there are just different safety issues. And it became really clear pretty quickly when I started working at Trader Joe's based on uh, several serious emergency situations that happened that while the management at the store level our managers, my managers were very willing to work with us on safety issues because corporate Trader Joe's does not have uh, stringent policies in place. We as crew members are being put at risk every single day with some of the situations that come up. So clearly there's a demand for, for safety. Does it have, is, is it specifically about COVID or is it, does it kind of uh, move beyond just the pandemic in terms of, uh, of worker safety? Yeah. So I think that uh, under the umbrella of safety, there are three different categories. So there's the ergonomic, the day to day um, safety. It's, it's, there's the interactions with our community or emergency situations, safety level, and then there's the pandemic safety. So those are those are three separate issues, each of which have their own have their own uh, elements that need to be addressed. And as far as the first one, Trader Joe's, I'm sure you know you've been to a Trader Joe's. They're they're old fashioned. They don't have um, they don't have conveyor belts. Almost every other grocery store, I, I don't think I've actually ever been to another grocery store, maybe a tiny little mom and pop grocery store that doesn't have a conveyor belt. And so that means that we as workers, 
lift uh, items out of the cart and put them into the cart uh, hundreds and thousands of times a day. We also bag folks' groceries for them, um, which, you know, it's, it's awesome. It's nice. But after a long period of time, it's a real strain on your wrists and arms. And I, after working at Trader Joe's for a year, uh, my arms and wrists feel not so great. And I can't imagine working at Trader Joe's for uh, 18 years and, and having that happen every single day. And I think that's just that's just one example of of small safety measures that we could that that seem pretty simple to to implement but but have not been implemented um and then in terms of just having emergency action plans giving folks sexual harassment training that feels comprehensive de-escalation training that feels comprehensive for stores in densely populated urban areas narcan training um, all of all of these, which again, it's not anything, it's not anything novel. Yeah, and having yeah, having emergency action plans that feel that help us feel safe while we do our job. And then the third is, and I think you know, many many companies we all struggled during the pandemic to figure out what was safe and what was not safe, and during my short time working at Trader Joe's during the pandemic, uh, it, it was just, it was a mess. Um, policies would change around safety without, you know, with very short notice. Um, and uh, I think that that happened everywhere, but like a lack of communication, um, many members of the store coming down with COVID and not receiving uh, enough um paid time off or the paid time off being implemented months afterwards with caveats, like all of these issues I think are familiar to many people who, who have worked, have, who have been frontline workers um, during the pandemic. But that doesn't mean that it's not worth saying, look, we deserve for our workplace to be safe. Yeah. And I think that that's a powerful message to people across workplaces, right? Like, you know, even though people can relate to it, it doesn't mean that we should. We shouldn't have to relate to being in unsafe working conditions where we're expected to literally put our lives on the line during a pandemic. Um, you know, these these kind of empty thank yous to front frontline workers mean nothing uh, if they're not also backed up by by actual uh, uh, lifestyle changes. And I'm curious, uh, you know, the response you've mentioned a, a, a little bit about how Trader Joe's corporate has has, uh, you know, used language and how they've uh, put out this kind of what sounds to me like a measly offering. Um, how has their response been, not just at, at, at Treasurer's Corporate, but also in the store? Is there a response from management that like, oh, now this, now we're feeling a bit like, uh, you know, uh, like, like we're, we're, we're caught in the middle or how has the response been from people, uh, in that, you know, in that corporate hierarchy, I guess would be a way to put it. Right. So I think as I, as I maybe stated before, our managers at our store have, have tried really, really hard to work with us on safety issues and have bent over backwards to say that they're receptive to talking to us about safety and implemented, measures that you know we have we have pointed out that that would make it safer on a day-to-day -day basis but 
their hands are tied when it, when it comes to corporate policy. There are things that they they just don't have the resources uh, to act, um, you know, with any sort of power. They've also reached out to corporate for us uh, in several situations and have been have been denied. And this was before. Uh, any talk of of unionizing so that dialogue has been in place I think that after we declared our intent to unionize uh, is when corporate started handing down the anti-union script to our managers and you know in in my personal opinion I think it's probably a pretty difficult situation to be in uh, being asked to carry out some of this anti-union messaging that feels coercive, threatening, and, you know, is, uh, is misinformation, um, or at least a twisting of misinformation and, um, and having our managers be asked to disseminate this information in sneaky ways, like pulling folks aside and feel, feeling like there's this atmosphere of, um, we know that, folks are going to be pulled aside and and asked or told things that aren't true about unionizing. Yeah, I mean folks uh, listening might recall the the incredible scare tactics that were going on at Amazon uh warehouses against people unionizing there uh literally making short changing stoplights to move quicker so that they wouldn't be able to read people's signs. <laughs> right. Like wow guys. And they would pay and uh they would pay union busters $10,000 a day. Right. And I was like, well you could just take some of that money and pay your workers more. It seems like an awful lot of work to to just continue to railroad your workers. Wow, you! I, I, it's it's kind of fascinating that they hate them that much, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's that's capitalism. Um, and so I'm kind of curious too, like how were the how how are the coworkers responding to these scare tactics, and how how do you feel that the uh, you know that uh, that the milieu is like in the store uh, amongst uh, your fellow workers? Right, I think that uh, in my store in particular, and I think it was different at Hadley. And I know that um, at in in the Hadley store, people were taken aside uh, and three on one, so three higher level managers that were you know regional manager and three on one were asked explicitly to vote no uh, on the union, right? Um, <laughs> so it hasn't gotten to that level in our store and who knows it might get to that level this week as uh, the week leading up to the election there has certainly been a lot of higher ups kind of wandering around and we're very aware of that um but yeah i think that we are a really really tight-knit crew we really like each other a lot um and we've experienced some truly crazy things in our workplace over this past year and so it's been really awesome seeing folks come together uh as soon as something happens as soon as uh you know a manager attempts to uh union bust or pass misinformation we immediately know we get a million texts uh about it and so i think that that's like 
that's that's felt really that's felt really good that's felt like um we're here for each other and we're watching each other's backs and we're very very protective each of each other and and we want to make sure that everyone has the information that they need to know we've been having so many conversations uh in and outside of work about this um since uh we first decided to start organizing and so i think that has only brought us closer together as a team that's awesome and i and i really love that you highlighted that too because i think that's oftentimes something that is sort of glossed over uh when talking about workplace organizing is the powerful connections that that you make with people when you're organizing for each other's uh you know basic human rights i would say um And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, going back to the, you know, the, the, the hierarchy here, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the, you know, you, you were saying that the managers can only do so much because they need resources that are only available to the larger corporate Trader Joe's. Do you have a, a, a sense or a feeling that if, you know, more and more stores unionize, it could kind of be a tipping point where Trader Joe's has to do this for all of their stores? Because if corporate makes a large shift for you know a few stores it seems like there might come that point where it's like just cheaper and makes more sense to make that shift for all of the stores do you have a a sense of that or is that a little bit too uh, down the road from from where you guys are looking yeah i mean i think that it was really uh their uh actions in unrolling these benefits after our election felt very transparent it, it felt like a transparent a transparent union busting like hey look we're gonna give you all these benefits that you've been asking for years and years now like here's a carrot like that's pretty classic right um and but i think that um that's only two stores they they unleashed or unrolled all of these benefits after only two stores declared their intent to unionize so what what's going to happen like you said when more when more stores and they will uh join our movement and and this is for everybody we we are super happy that and and it's uh i should probably note that um hadley the hadley store and our store were excluded from these benefits um and <laughs> Yeah, until after uh, our union election, and and we were told that we'll be getting these benefits after our union election. We'll see, um, but <laughs> you know, like again, how how uh, very transparent here. Um, but yeah, so like we're super happy that all of our our coworkers in other locations are going to be getting these benefits. Like that's amazing. That's what we're looking for. You know, that's what we've been asking for all along. And so um, if our unionizing and many other stores unionizing is the push that gets Trader Joe's corporate to take the condition working conditions uh, of their workers seriously, then amazing. We love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um so kind of wrapping up here, can you give folks just like, I know you mentioned safety and obviously benefits, but is there kind of like a bullet point list of demands uh, that, you know, if if it were that kind of thing, you could tack up on a door somewhere like that kind of uh, bullet point rundown of things? Right. So I'm, so because each contract is specific to the store, 
to each store, those are our demands are going to be negotiated and talked about collectively in each store. And we think like, that's really beautiful. We need really, really different things uh, than other stores do, but we have like this uh, commonality also. So uh, we don't have a list of specific demands, although we know you know, a million and one things that we would like to add to our contract when the time comes. Um, yeah, we are absolutely psyched. I actually love that too, because I, I think it's very important to recognize the the power of, you know, autonomous and self-determined uh, nodes as opposed to some kind of, I think the, the problem here really stems from this centralized hierarchical system and to try and replicate right. that would only replicate problems. Uh, so. Uh, with that, I'm just curious, like, as we wrap up here, what would be your, as as somebody who's pushing for workplace unionization, what would be your words uh, to folks who are thinking about it or feel that they are, you know, under the under the boot of, uh, of a corporation and, um, and and might be interested in trying to organize around uh, and around getting getting making things better? Yeah, I would say that the two most important things um, for us were uh, forming relationships with our coworkers. So getting to know each other as a first step. And second, educating ourselves about unions. We did a lot of homework. We talked to a lot of people in the Twin Cities in the store who were involved in unions, who are parts of unions. We talked to you know, not just grocery store unions, but restaurant unions, teachers unions, nurses unions, um, just before we did anything. Um, and that was so we could get a really good sense of what it felt like to be in a union, how we could benefit, what some of the disadvantages might be. Um, and so I think that like, there's this wonderful uh, union energy in our country right now. And so it's possible you know, like six, six, seven months ago, this was just a tiny seed of an idea for us. And for, you know, many people, that's, that's the case right now, but it's possible. And we believe that we can make things better for ourselves and for uh, the Trader Joe's community at large. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Beth. Can you tell folks how they can follow what's going on with Trader Joe's United and uh, where they can find more information. Yeah. So uh, we are on Twitter. We're also on Instagram at Trader Joe's United. Um, and yeah, follow us. Also come into our stores, say hi. Uh, if you're in Minneapolis or Hadley, come in, say, you know, introduce yourself, tell us uh, how happy you are and we'll, we'd be happy also to have a conversation with you about anything union related or just, you know, anything. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Beth. I really appreciate you taking the time and best of luck. And that was an interview Eleanor Goldfield did with Sarah Beth Ryder, a worker at Trader Joe's in Minnesota, who was also taking part in a campaign to unionize Trader Joe's employees. This is part of a larger wave of unionization efforts happening across the United States. Up next, who decides what materials you can see or read online. In earlier times, human editors would have made those choices. But as my project-censored colleague, our associate director, Andy Lee Roth, explains, nowadays it might not be human beings at all, but secret algorithms. 
Andy wrote an article about this trend last year for the Marcause Review, titled, The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. These are efforts that we also talk about as a form of censorship by proxy by big tech companies. We'll hear this conversation I had with Andy about the rise of editorial algorithms right after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome back the Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. Project Censored, of course, has dealt with news media censorship for over four decades. And over that time, the means by which information is controlled, curated, or censored has changed. The end game remains the same. The public is not informed enough about how their news ecosystems work and they don't necessarily know when or why they're getting information or not getting information they need. In a recent article, Andy Lee Roth writes about the new gatekeepers, how proprietary algorithms increasingly determine the news we see. Andy Lee Roth is, as I noted, Associate Director of Project Censored, where he coordinates the project's campus affiliates program, a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. Andy Lee Roth co-edited the project's newest book, and his work has been published in a number of outlets, including Index on Censorship, In These Times, Yes Magazine, Media, Culture, and Society, and the International Journal of Press and Politics. Today, we'll talk to Andy Lee Roth about a recent piece that was published by the Marcaz Review. Andy Lee Roth, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. Thanks so much, Mickey. It's always a pleasure to join you on the show. Indeed it is. And of course, full disclosure, I co-edited the Censored Book 2021 with you this past year. And of course, you can learn more about that work at projectcensored.org. This time around, Andy Lee Roth, you've written a piece for the Marcaz Review, and you took a deep dive into the new forms of censorship in a digital era. And given that Project Censored has been focusing on news media censorship for over four decades, let's set this up. In the 21st century, in 2021, you're writing about something old but new. You're talking about new gatekeepers. Let's talk a little bit about this new form of censorship that we see online. Could you set this up for us? The new gatekeepers are algorithms, artificial intelligence programs, in this case controlled by big tech companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter, that use these proprietary algorithms to determine the kinds of news stories we're likely to see and know about when we are on these major fundamental and global platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Google's search engine. And so one of the guiding principles of any sort of ethical journalism is that news should be accountable and it should be transparent. 
that's one of the ethical tenets of the Society of Professional Journalists. And what I argue in this article that was published in Marcaz Review is that news gatekeeping conducted by proprietary algorithms crosses wires with that ethical guideline. And the result is grave threats to the integrity of journalism and the likelihood of a well-informed public. So Andy Lee Roth, over the years, Project Censored, of course, has dealt with a myriad form of censorship or censorship in many guises, both decrying censorship while also buttressing a truly independent and free press. So it's problem plus solution. So um, we're not just pointing fingers up and saying that this is a problem. We're also going to try to come up with some solutions. And we're going to get to that later in our conversation because your article doesn't just lay out the problems. It does give us some direction about what to do. But let's talk about this new kind of gatekeeping and algorithms. And in order to do that, perhaps you could set up that kind of language or analysis for us about gatekeeping in general. I want to take us back to the 1950s to a pair of foundational studies in the history of communication and the sociology of news. The first of these studies was conducted by David Manning White, and he spent time, several weeks, with the editor of a small Midwestern newspaper. David Manning White was interested in how this editor chose news stories that were coming over the newswire. White called this editor Mr. Gates because White's understanding of this process was that the editor acted as a kind of gatekeeper. And this was a position of influence and to some extent power, choosing what stories go into the paper and what stories don't. So White studied Mr. Gates' decision process for several weeks. And what he found was that there were two types of reasons that Mr. Gates provided for rejecting stories as being worthy of inclusion in the paper. Some of these stories were rejected on practical reasons. Mr. Gates felt the story was vague, the writing was dull, or the story had simply come in too late and there was no space left in that day's edition of the paper. But in 18 of the 423 decisions that White examined, Mr. Gates rejected the stories for political reasons. For instance, saying this story is no good, it's pure propaganda, it's too red. And White concluded his 1950 article about gatekeeping in the news editing process by emphasizing, here I'll quote directly, highly subjective, how based on the gatekeeper's own set of experiences, attitudes, and expectations, the communication of news really is. So David Manning White's study established as a fundamental for people interested in news and communication, the power of the editor as a gatekeeper, and more specifically, that that power often manifested in White's assessment as a form of the editor's own political bias, his own individual bias, shaping the decision about news, about what qualified as news. The interesting thing, I think, about White's study is what happened almost immediately after it was published. Another researcher, Walter Gieber, decided to conduct a similar study, only this time, instead of looking at just the decisions of a single Wire editor, David Manning White's Mr. Gates, Gieber looked at the decisions of 16 different Wire editors. So they're making the same kinds of decisions. They work at the same kinds of news organizations, but Gieber is looking at a number of them. 
Gieber's findings basically refuted what White had concluded previously, that gatekeeping was a subjective individual decision process. Instead, what Gieber found was that the editors, independently of one another, were making very much the same decisions. So gatekeeping was real. The power of the gatekeeper was real. But the editors were treating story selection not as a matter of pursuing a particular political agenda, but as kind of a professional daily job. Gieber described editors that he studied as being concerned with goals of production and bureaucratic routine. And a number of studies since then have reinforced Gieber's findings that professional assessments of newsworthiness and not political partisanship guide news workers' decisions about what stories to cover. And I think that finding, although it's a commonplace in, say, the sociology of news media literature, is just an insight that has failed to make any headway in public discussions about news bias more generally. We still see again and again discussions driven by the notion of this journalist or this outlet is driven by a personal and sometimes individual agenda politically. And there's just a huge amount of evidence in the field that I have spent most of my life studying the sociology of news production to show that that's simply not so. But that understanding of the the significance of personal political bias in shaping news content is kind of like a zombie that won't die, despite the evidence to the contrary. But for a long time then, whether you find White's initial analysis compelling or Gieber's more institutionally and organizationally focused study of gatekeeping compelling, it's always been humans that have been the gatekeepers. This is fascinating because of what we're going to be talking about in a few moments about big tech, Silicon Valley, algorithms, sort of a new type of news filtering. But in your article at themarkaz.org, M-A-R-K-A-Z dot O-R-G, you also write about sociologist Michael Shudson, and you talk more about the gatekeeping model as being problematic. Could you introduce that to our listeners? Like all models or theories in the social sciences, they follow trends or they enjoy popularity and they fall out of favor, just like fancy restaurants in downtown Los Angeles. The gatekeeping model fell out of favor as other models came onto the scene that seemed to better explain the news production process. And Shudson was one of the people who did a fair amount to discredit the utility of the gatekeeping model. He described it as a handy, if not altogether appropriate metaphor in a 1989 article, The Sociology of News Production, that's been very influential and republished multiple times. The gatekeeping model, Shudson said, was problematic because it leaves information sociologically untouched. His critique was that gatekeeping treats news as something that comes preformed to an editor when in fact the production of news is so much more complex and multifaceted and multi-staged than that. And so a model of news gatekeeping that treated the news as if it was preformed was for Schutzen and others an uh, inadequate model. And part of my argument is that while that was in many ways true of news as it's been produced for decades, if not centuries in the United States, that under the new conditions that we face now, where algorithmic gatekeeping by big tech companies that don't see themselves as engaged in journalism, they don't even acknowledge that they are media entities, 
this gatekeeping model now kind of sidesteps some of the Shudson critique because for these big platforms for Google, Facebook, and Twitter who don't produce news stories of their own, news does arrive kind of preformed and they, in the form of their algorithms, are making decisions about what news stories circulate widely and don't circulate widely. We're going to get to that element of news production and this new digital era censorship, deplatforming, algorithmic news filtering. But I couldn't help but note the dates around here in the late 80s. Of course, you and I are very aware of Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky's propaganda model coming out of manufacturing consent in 1988. How do you see that segueing between these couple of models, Herman and Chomsky? They talk about ownership and advertising and what's newsworthy, right? Who's newsworthy and who's not newsmakers and shapers and the role of ideology and flack and these kind of things. Where does this fit in? And, and does this analysis segue into the more algorithmic types of censorship that we're seeing now? The propaganda model that Herman and Chomsky developed in the late 80s, as you say, was focused on the idea of news being subject to filters, filters that didn't render the news more clean and healthy but that rendered it more sterile. The filters that Herman and Chomsky were interested in filtered out anything that would challenge status quo understandings or official narratives about why things are the way they are and why the people in power legitimately deserve to be in power. So in that sense, I think, although Herman and Chomsky writing in 1989 in the very earliest days of what we know now and take for granted as the internet, didn't talk about algorithmic censorship. I think algorithmic censorship of the sort I'm interested in in this article, The New Gatekeepers, is entirely compatible with the propaganda model that Herman and Chomsky advanced. I'd like to remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Right now, we're speaking with the associate director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. We're discussing a recent article just published at the Marcaz Review, The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. After this brief musical break, we'll learn more about how this happens. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, in this segment, we are joined by the Associate Director of Project Censored, Dr. Andy Lee Roth. We are discussing a recent article just published at the Marcaz Review. That's the Marcaz, M-A-R-K-A-Z dot org. The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. Just a reminder, Andy Lee Roth, again, Associate Director of Project Censored. He coordinates the Project's Campus Affiliates Program, which is a news media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. His most recent book, co-edited, is Project Censored State of the Free Press 2021, out on Seven Stories Press. 
Andy Lee Roth, before the break, we were talking about a history of gatekeeping and different types of models for understanding news curating, if you will. And we're now getting to the part of your article that talks about algorithmic news filtering. You make some really keen distinctions about the types of past and present filtering, so-called censorship, if you will. So could you talk to us about this algorithmic news filtering in the 21st century? So the original gatekeeping that we've been discussing is, is, as I mentioned previously, has always been a human enterprise. It's human decisions. And therefore, it was subject to researchers, if they could get access to newsrooms, they could go and they could study directly how editors made decisions about what stories made the news and what stories didn't make the news. The challenge with the new algorithmic gatekeeping, or at least one of the fundamental challenges, is that it's impossible for a contemporary version of a David Manning White or a Walter Gieber to study gatekeeping processes at Google or Facebook. The algorithms that are engaged in the new gatekeeping are protected from public scrutiny. They're considered by the corporations that utilize them to be proprietary intellectual property, and they're guarded carefully as such. And so we end up having to try to study the effects of these algorithms in indirect ways. My colleague April Anderson and I published an article early last year in the Index on Censorship, where one of the things we were looking at how algorithmic content filtering on a variety of online and social media platforms disproportionately affects LGBTQ people and communities. And one of the things we did to try to understand the power of these algorithms was to compare a week's worth of coverage of LGBTQ issues as reported back to us by Google News and DuckDuckGo, another search engine that also aggregates news stories. And what we found when we looked at Google News was that it was remarkably biased in terms of the content that it would uh, report back, that most of the content that rated most highly on Google News, much of it didn't even come from outlets that I would consider to be news organizations. And much of it was far more prejudiced against LGBT people, communities, and issues than any of the contemporary polling we have suggests that public opinion is on those same issues. So incredible bias. It's impossible, though, as, as we noted in our Index on Censorship article, then it would be impossible to assess whether Google News was biased in those ways because its algorithm is biased or whether because conservatives with homophobic and transphobic agendas were skillfully gaming the algorithm to, to promote their own virulent content. That question is not answerable as long as the algorithms are proprietary. And again, the other issue here is that these are a handful of private corporations claiming proprietary rights over information that is actually a big part of the public sphere. And this runs headlong into the public's right to know the role of a free press and how we need to be accurately informed in order to have meaningful civic engagement. This is a major challenge we have, ironically, in the so-called information era. We purportedly have information at our fingertips, but how does that information get to the fingertips? And Andy Lee Roth, you pointed out an issue that Project Censored was involved in last year as a co-sponsor of a, of a media literacy conference that was seemingly disappeared from YouTube as an example of how even seemingly innocuous scholarship about 
these topics can be disappeared on the internet. That's right. And that was in some ways an impetus for my writing this article. Of course, working with Project Censored for years now, I'm familiar with the idea of online content filtering. But this was the first time that something that I had been involved with had been subject to it. So yeah, this October 2020 conference that Project Censored was a co-sponsor of, along with USC and Stanford, I believe, major organizations with significant academic clout. There was nothing remarkable per se about the content of these panels. And yet after the conference had concluded and after the organizers had uploaded video recordings of some 20 hours of conference presentations to a YouTube channel that had been created by the conference organizers to make the sessions available to a wider public. After all that, YouTube removed those conference videos without any notification or explanation. A conference where public scholars and activists were warning about the dangers of media censorship. Ironically, such conference and those messages were subject to media censorship. And that got me thinking about Mm -hmm. models for what had happened. And the first that I sort of thought about was in George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, how technology that people who use it refer to as memory holes, it's an ironic naming, because of course, the things that are dumped in the memory holes are any kind of documentation or evidence of positions or events that might conflict with or undermine the dystopian government's interests as determined by the Ministry of Truth. So, you know, it felt a little bit like this critical media literacy conference had been subjected to a digital memory hole. But as I thought about it further, that's when I really came on to the idea that, no, this was actually this new form of an old model, a new form of gatekeeping. The concept that White and Geber had developed in the 50s was newly applicable. By the way, you also mentioned, in addition to the algorithmic censorships, you do mention more of the old form of deplatforming, mentioning these tech companies deplatforming then-President Donald Trump, suspending Parler, a popular site where many Trump supporters would go. And, and you aptly point out that these were clearly human decisions. So we're dealing with multiple avenues of censorship or deplatforming here. And I think the significant thing about the deplatforming of Trump and many of his supporters and the suspension of Parler after the January 6th assault on the Capitol, there were two things about those that I think are very important to understand to differentiate that kind of media control from what I'm calling the new gatekeeping. As you point out, Mickey, those were human decisions. They were reported in the news And it wasn't the focus of the stories about those decisions that humans had made them, but that was implicit in the coverage. The other thing is they were reported as newsworthy events in their own right. They were treated, as C. Wright Mills, the sociologist, would say, as public issues, things that concerned more than the immediate circle of people who were directly involved in them. They mattered to the society as a whole. By contrast, though, The kinds of things that I'm calling the new gatekeeping are stories that may be well known to listeners of the Project Censored radio show, but have not enjoyed the kind of widespread media attention that the deplatforming of Donald Trump by Twitter or the suspension of Parler received. So I'm thinking about issues like how independent news outlets have documented the ways in which Twitter, Facebook, and others have suspended the uh, accounts 
of Venezuelan, Iranian, and Syrian users who have been posting content that conflicts with U.S. foreign policy. As I mentioned, April Anderson and I have written about how the Google News aggregator filters out pro-LGBTQ stories while amplifying homophobic and transphobic voices, and also how changes made by Facebook to its news feed effectively throttled web traffic to progressive news outlets like Mother Jones. In each of those cases, the decisions have not been treated as public issues. They haven't been reported on as such. The decisions to filter content have not been widely appreciated. And this is the heart of the argument. Those decisions weren't made by humans, or at least they weren't made directly by humans. They were made by algorithms. And so increasingly, the news is a product of both the daily routines and professional judgments of journalists, editors, and other news professionals, but also the product of the assessments of relevance and appropriateness that are being made on a daily, hourly, you know, moment-by-moment basis by artificial intelligence programs that we don't know very much about. But we do know they're controlled by private for-profit corporations that don't see themselves as engaged in journalism and therefore not responsible to the kind of ethical standards of good journalism. Well, Andy Lee Roth, near the end of your article at themarkaz.org, it's a special issue on the truth or why truth, uh, a fascinating series of articles, yours among them. You write that there are critical studies of algorithmic bias, and you point out to readers some of the key scholars that are trying to help us understand this, including Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression, She was one of the people that spoke at the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas that was disappeared. You mentioned Virginia Eubanks' Automating Inequality, Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction. And you go on to talk about how we don't just need to sit around and wait for others to try to tackle this problem for us. What can we do in response to algorithmic gatekeeping? And you recommend four proactive responses. Could you share these things that we can all be doing? The first one is to avoid using Google as a verb. And I want to give a shout out to our colleague, Emil Marmol, who at that very conference alerted me to this kind of thing that we all do, right? It's a common habit to say, oh, I'll Google that. And when we use our language that way, when we talk about a generic online activity using the brand name of a corporation, we're reinforcing the status quo. There's something ironic about using the term Google to talk about a way of seeking information where we're using the very name of a company that is in many ways controlling and filtering the kinds of information that we can find for ourselves, even as Google, of course, is sharing all kinds of information about us with other entities who are willing to pay for that information. Let's not use Google as a verb and think about using search engines other than Google this is the second point I make of a recommendation for a proactive response to these issues, things we can do now, today, on our own. Remember that search engines and social media feeds aren't neutral information sources. Third, I think it's important to connect directly to the news organizations that you believe display firm commitments to ethical journalism. In other words, don't rely on social media feeds to get your news. I recommend going to the outlet's website, signing up for the outlet's email list or its RSS feed, subscribing to it if it has a print edition, 
So Andy Lee Roth, you have the four proactive responses. Avoid using Google as a verb. You recommend moving from Google to, say, DuckDuckGo as an example. Connect directly to news organizations that display firm commitments to ethical journalism. And then last, you call for one other thing regarding algorithms. Yeah, calling out algorithmic bias when you encounter it. In some ways, my whole article is me doing just this. I was at this critical media literacy conference of the Americas, as were you, Mickey, and many of our colleagues, and important insights that I think are well worth sharing. It's at least hard now, if not impossible, to find these things via YouTube. This article is partly me doing what I'm recommending others do, call it out directly, both to the entity responsible for the algorithmic censorship, but also calling it out publicly by letting others know about it. Andy Lee Roth, author most recently of an article at the Marcaz Review, The New Gatekeepers, How Proprietary Algorithms Increasingly Determine the News We See. Thanks once again for joining us on the Project Censored show today. Thanks, Mickey. We want to smash, crash, mash, mash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear. And that does it for another episode today. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010. I am Mickey Huff, executive producer and co-host of the program, along with co-host and associate producer Eleanor Goldfield. Special thanks to Anthony Fest, our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. Please feel free to share your feedback or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. Last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, skies and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why tax and water bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you probably on the menu. We got that love of the brothers and our sisters.